Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give glory, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word going on port city family and friends my name is tanner and it is good to be with you um y'all advent is upon us and we're starting a new sermon series so if you're new this is a great time to be here and if i'm honest before about 10 years ago i never really heard the word advent before um and maybe you could have grown up in a christian house and not even know what that means okay um it's a it's a word that is in the christian space so i want to break that down for you a little bit here this morning Advent just means arrival, okay? It means coming, right? And so what Christians have done for 2,000 years is they have anticipated the original arrival of Jesus, his first arrival. So we read and kind of enter the world that was, as best we can, the longing awaiting for the Messiah. But also, we are waiting him to come back, aren't we? So it could also be said we are waiting on an advent, on an arrival. So we are those who live in the time between the two advents, We've seen the first, we're waiting on the second. So something that I hope me and Pastor John can get across in the next four weeks is that although the object of our faith is more clear and in some ways different than it was for the first audience, we see things more clearly, right? We understand, we have the whole New Testament. The nature of faith is not that different. Let me say that one more time. The object of our faith is clearer than ever. New Testament, Jesus, Holy Spirit, like there's so much more we understand than the original Christmas audience. But the nature of faith is very similar, meaning it still involves waiting. We're waiting an arrival. <laughs> We're waiting some things that haven't come. We've got promises. We've been given a way to live. We've been given his presence, but we are waiting, right? Jesus says, pray, my kingdom come, I will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done, which means it isn't fully here yet. We live between the two advents. It's happened and it's still happening. So in some ways, we need to learn how to wait. Somebody say wait. wait. We got to learn how to wait, y'all. We got to learn how to wait. And I want to give you a picture of two different types of waiting because that can mean a lot of things. All right, so here's the two pictures. Number one is at 9 a.m. you have a root canal. All right. It is 840. You have filled out all the forms. For the 500th time at your dentist's office and you're sitting there and those 20 minutes are probably a pretty restless waiting are they not are you checking your phone you best believe it uh you are texting everybody you are instagramming you are doing whatever you got you're restless 
okay? You're just killing time waiting, right? Your waiting is just for the doctor to do what only the doctor can do, right? The dentist is going to do it. It's just my presence here is all that's needed, okay? Second type of waiting is like you are in a play. You have a role. The director comes and speaks with you, okay? He gives you the set design. He gives you your lines. He gives you the script. You're in a room with the other characters. And he says, when I and the main character return, the play begins. I'll see you soon. Now, that kind of waiting would be much more active, would it not? It would be much more, I want to embody my part, so when you walk through the door, we good, okay? So it is a, it's, a, it's a memorizing lines, it's getting to know my cast, it's building the set, it's a participatory waiting, not a let me just kill time waiting. Does that make sense? Now, what I would tell you is actually both have some accuracy, because we need the dentist, are you with me? I can't root canal myself, so I don't want to invalidate waiting to wait when you can't do anything, but we live in a time where we're more like the actor and we're adopting the practices like we're in the waiting room to get the root canal. Are you with me? We need to be pulled into becoming the part we've been given. Are you with me? We need to enter. The word I'm going to say a lot today is enter, and the way we wait is by beholding. We behold to wait. And as we behold, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. You become what you behold. And so for the next four weeks, we were talking about beholding the Lord's servant. The title of this message is Behold My Servant. And we're going to walk through um, just honestly one verse. Uh, We're just going to be in verse one mainly here in Isaiah 42, and I'm going to come back to it a few more times. Pastor John will hit another servant song here next week. Uh, We're excited just to to slowly break this thing down. So what I want to do is I want to talk about beholding the servant's story. That's point number one. I want to talk about beholding the servant's identity. And then lastly, we're just going to talk about beholding the servant. Are you ready? Okay, let's get it. So let's behold the servant's story. So we're in the book of Isaiah, and in case you haven't done a crash course on it recently, I want to just catch you up on what's going on. Okay, I want you to just understand the moment in history that the people of God are in, okay? So the whole Old Testament can be summed up as we got a problem, everybody's sinful, so I'm going to bring a family, I'm going to bring a person from a family through whom the whole world will be blessed, right? And so we got the exodus, and they're removed out of slavery, right? They're removed from Egypt, and now you're going to be my people. I'm going to bring you to the promised land. It's going down. Let me give you a king in my land with my law. Here we go. Everything is going good. We got King David around 1,000 B.C. It's looking good. The problem is they're not at all fulfilling their task. They were told to be a light to the nations, a kingdom of priests. When people look at you, they should know what it's like to have Yahweh as their God. Things should be different. Justice is the norm. We do things different with one another and with outsiders. And God is gracious, and we got people like Rahab getting saved, and stuff is going down because he's good, but not because they're good at walking in what he gave them to do, okay? And so what's happening is God always was saying these little things. If you go back, I know we struggle on our reading plans. We struggle around Deuteronomy. But something you'll pick up on a lot is that God will just slip in there like, hey, this is who you're going to be. And when you're not that, I won't be done with you, but it will change things. Okay, the, the penalty for sin is always getting kicked out. Notice that with Adam and Eve. It's not that I'm done with you and Adam and Eve, but you do got to go. And I'm going to put somebody here to guard it. So I'm putting you in my promised land, but if y'all blow this, I'm going to kick you out. You see that? Exile is always the response for rebellion. 
It doesn't mean I'm done with you, but you will pay. There is a payment. Exile is the, the, it's somewhat the removal of presence to some degree. So the people of God are in the land, and there's one other historical thing you got to know from the Old Testament. You can write down 1 Kings 12. Just go read it at some point. It'll make all the prophetic books make more sense to you if you can understand this moment, because I struggled with it for a long time. But basically what happens after David, he has a son named Solomon. Remember, and, and God had told David, you're going to have a king on the throne forever, ever, ever. So Solomon, and then Solomon has a son, Rehoboam. Well, in 1 Kings 12, it goes from one kingdom, right, all together. In 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam says, I'm going to be harsher than anybody you've ever seen. And the 10 of the tribes are like, okay, we out. Uh, and they, they divide the kingdom. Massive moment. And that's why 1 Kings, 2 Kings can be hard to understand, but there's two kingdoms of one people. Does that make sense? They're all God's people, but now it's two kingdoms. So the north is Israel, south is Judah. Are y'all with me? I remember it, Isaiah, Judah. I comes before J. That's how I remember it. I comes before J. Now Jerusalem is in Judah. That's the capital. So a lot of uh, Zion's another term for that. So that's where a lot of these terms come up in your Bible. It's just applying theology to geography. That's what's going on. So we got Israel, we got Judah. So what does it have to do with Isaiah? Isaiah is a prophet in Judah in the 8th century BC. Are you with me now? Okay, so there's two tribes, Isaiah, you got Israel, Judah. He is their prophet, and some stuff is going down, okay? Some stuff is going down. King Hezekiah is in control, and what's happening up in Israel is the Assyrian army is threatening to take them over, okay? So Israel is speaking to the people of God going, y'all need to watch what's happening, Y'all need to pay attention because what's happening is they're being judged for what they failed to be and do. They were, they're doing the right stuff. They're fasting. They're throwing the feast God asked them to, but they don't love him at all. And that's just like us, y'all. We need to get right, Judah. We need to get right, Judah. That's, it. that's Isaiah's message. But Israel does this crazy thing where they make a treaty with another nation. They're like, we're in trouble. Let's go get some help, right? So let's not ask the God who split the Red Sea. Let's ask another nation to have our back. Are you with me? So Hezekiah gets approached by Israel to go in with them with another nation. This is Isaiah 37. So the book kind of splits. 1 to 37 is all together, and then 40 to 66 is together, and 37 to 40 is where it transitions. Are you with me? And so I'm getting you there because we're in chapter 42, so you can understand where we're at in the book. So basically, he does something noble. He says, I'm not doing a treaty with y'all. Assyria takes over Israel. This is like 722 B.C. That is un, uh, uh, what's the word? Nobody disagrees with it. Historically, that happened. Like, that's a thing in history. 722, Assyrians take over. 721. So, Isaiah is like, listen, you did great. You, you didn't listen to their king. And then you know what Hezekiah does in the next chapter? After saying no to them, God comes in and has their back in Isaiah 38. He brings an angel army in the middle of the night to, to scare the Assyrian army, and they leave. So, they were going to take over Judah, and it's over. And he brings these angels to protect them, middle of the night. It's amazing. You know what Hezekiah's response to that was? He invites some people from Babylon to come check out their treasury. Hey, come look at everything we own. And if you don't know this, Babylon ends up taking over Judah in 586 B.C. So it was like, you are so stupid that God sends you an angel army in the middle of the night to protect you. And your response to that was to invite some other homies to just come check it out. Come check things out, man. And he's so tone deaf. At the end of the chapter 39, Isaiah says, 
this was foolish. One day you're going to, all of our people are going to go to Babylon. And Isaiah, and Hezekiah's like, that's a good thing. That must mean things are good for us. That's how tone deaf the people of God are at that moment. Is everybody with me? So, starting in chapter 40, the whole book assumes people are reading the book from exile. Does that make sense? So God is saying, y'all will be judged. Judgment is exile, which means you will leave the land. Babylon will take you over. They're my instrument. So the rest of the book assumes that they need to be comforted because they feel like they've been abandoned. Are you with me? So you can turn over one page. Look at Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. These are the first verses right after. You could even look at the, the title in your Bible. Um, in 39, probably said envoys from Babylon or something like that. That's that story I just told you about where they come and check things out. Now look at the first two verses of the rest of Isaiah with me. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received double from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. Here's the idea. He's telling Isaiah, now you've been my messenger of judgment. You've told them what's going to happen if they don't become who I've called them to be. Now comfort them. Assume, the rest of this book assumes that they blew it, assumes they're in exile, and they need comfort. So this is a prophecy 200 years in advance that you're going to be taken over by them, and now here's the comfort to you once you're taken over. Are you with me? So this is the question, because we're almost there. I know this feels a little history lesson-ish. You're doing great. You're doing great. We're we, we getting there. We're almost done. The question is, what comfort do they need? What comfort would you need if you were in a foreign land? right, with a foreign king. If you're an Israelite, you're probably thinking, I need the exodus again. I need to be saved from a bad king. Like Pharaoh, I need to be brought back to the land. They're thinking, get me out of here and get me a new king, right? Well, what, look at Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Some of y'all who really know your New Testament, we know that is a prophecy about a man named John the Baptist. So the process to comfort my people isn't to get them out of somewhere, it's to send somebody. You see, we don't need a new place, we need a new person to do what we keep failing to do. So he says, I'm going to comfort you by telling you somebody's coming, and it's God himself. Prepare a highway for Yahweh to come, like make a road, make a path. And the question is, what will it be like when Yahweh comes? Now we turn to our text here today. Chapter 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The idea is I'm going to comfort you. Somebody's coming. It's my servant. It's my servant. And this servant in one sense, will be the, the redeemed people of God who have who've gone through the refining process of exile and all that. But we know, because we've read the whole Old Testament up to this point, no matter what God does for them, they're going to end up being the same busted group of people. This is different. This servant is different. Look at verse 6, chapter 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. You probably see a little note above the, the you there. It's a singular you, meaning like you, a person. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Talking to the servant. 
That sounds exactly like what he had called the people of God to do, doesn't it? It sounds like some person, singular, is coming that will be everything they collectively failed to be. Are you with me? Somebody is coming. The comfort you need isn't that I'm going to take the big bad Rome away and get you a new home. You need a new presence. You need a new person fulfilling what you failed to fulfill. So it's not that it's not an exodus. It's just an exodus you're not expecting. It's not about geography. It's about me and you. So what we've got to see here, family, this is what we've got to understand as we begin to set our minds on this Christmas season and beholding. Jesus' story doesn't just go from like sin to, to us, like able to accept him. He is fulfilling a story. He is something the people of God had always failed to be. In the servant, Israel's failed story and purpose in the world is being fulfilled in the purpose of person of Jesus. That is huge. So what that means is when we study the servant story, that something's happening there. Like we, we can't look at Jesus isolated from the story he came to fulfill. Are you with me? We can't just remove him from that story. He's beautiful in that, but his beauty comes as we behold the story. Are you with me? So behold the servant in his story. As you do that, what you'll notice is that this servant is fulfilling the story of the people of God. That's what he's doing. He is the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. It's him. He is fulfilling what, what was promised all the way back to Abraham. You know, the world was busted. Everybody was sinful. You remember the story of Noah and the flood. Like God would say, there's not one person. There's nobody. Y'all are all busted. And right after the flood, Noah gets drunk, which points out to us, Noah wasn't like pure, y'all. <laughs> and the response to the sin of man was to call Abraham. Adam's problem became Abraham's solution. Through Abraham, I'm going to solve the problem we have with Adam. Does that mean Abraham is special? No. It means I'm making a covenant. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make it happen. So he is fulfilling the story of the people of God that they failed to fulfill. He's also fulfilling the story of the world. Because this is the thing you've got to understand about the people of God in the Old Testament. It's not that God was anti-everybody but Israel. It's that what he was to Israel, he wanted to be for everybody. That was the point. If you want to know what I want to be to you, look what I am to them and come get in on the action. That's always, that's the testimony of the church right now. We ain't better than nobody. We are the invitation community saying, come get a slice. This is how it tastes, what it looked like. This is how free it is. I don't deserve to be here. I've been brought here. So what God wanted to be for all, he is for Abraham. What God wanted to do for Adam, he did through Abraham. And so the servant had to solve Adam's problem. And the servant was going to solve Adam's problem through Abraham's process, which is through his loins. Like quite literally, he's the chosen one, the servant. And this is the last thing about this, this story is, is that he's not just fulfilling. He is also building a... This, this is the thing. He's not just fixing what they broke. He is like building, like he's undoing what they broke and then rewriting what they never wrote. Are you with me? Like if you aren't what you were supposed to be from day one, we have no idea what you could have become. Does that make sense? So like Israel never even got close to the kind of justice and things like that God had in store for them to be. So I got to fix what you busted, and now I got to write what you never wrote. I got to fix your bad story, and I got to rewrite the new one that God wanted to write through y'all. Are you with me? So when we behold Jesus, we're watching somebody fix our problems, but we're also watching somebody build a world we were designed to build. And in him, you can become one who builds it. Are you with me? 
in him you will be one who builds it. That's the beauty of Jesus. When this unlocks for you, a lot of the New Testament starts to make sense because he is both fulfilling a story and rewriting one. And at any given moment, if you don't understand the background story, you're going to miss a lot of the beauty of what's going on. Are you tracking with me? So one, one text, so there's two times that the passage we're reading a lot this, this month, every Sunday, gets quoted in the book of Matthew, okay? One time in Matthew 12, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But the one I want to look at with you real quick is in Matthew chapter 3, okay? So you can turn there, um, Matthew chapter 3, and if you're using a, 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 a Bible, you just shout out the page that's on uh, somebody because I didn't write it down. Uh, one of the, one of the um, Bibles in front of us, Matthew chapter 3. If you find what page that's on, just grace us by telling us. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 13, going to 17. Se- 758. So if you have the Bible in front of you, it's 758. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. So this is the story of the baptism of Jesus. This is where he is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, who we just read about being prophesied. So look at verse 13 with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. A lot of connotations with Isaiah 42.1. Difference being, instead of servant, is son. But the pleased idea, my soul delights in this person. It has connotations from a couple other scriptures as well. But here's what's so important. Y'all, we could talk about Jesus being baptized for like 10 years, how crazy of a concept it is, but John picks up on it right away. Most people need to get baptized because they're sinners. Why are you here, you know? (laughs) And here's the point. He's being baptized because I got to break something that's broken and I got to write something that hasn't been written. Are you with me? He's like, I've got to fulfill the story. Think about this, y'all. Look at where he gets baptized, out in the River Jordan. And then what happens immediately after that is he's sent into the desert not for 40 years like the people of God but for 40 days to be tempted by Satan and he passes in every way that the people of God and Adam all of them failed Jesus was fulfilling that quite literally if you go look at the geography it's like he left went to the desert and then came back in so all in the gospels what's happening is that Jesus is finishing a story fulfilling a story and now he is writing something that hasn't been written does that make sense and we get in on that you could say it like this, Jesus entered our world so that we might enter his. That's what that baptism represents. He entered our story. In his story, we find our story. He takes our past, we get his future. We get his now, we get his future. That's the idea, is that we get to, to make something brand new. He wants to build a world with you. Yes, God loves you. Yes, God has taken your sin away. And the purpose of that is to begin something new, to write a new book. That's what he's after, a new book of justice and love and fulfilling all the things that the people of God had failed to do. So I would just say to you, if you're not a believer here today, here's what I want you to understand about the Christmas season. It is not a bunch of good people, uh, you know, heroizing the best of us. Oh, Jesus is better than me. I love that guy, but he picked me. Amen, somebody. Um, 
The idea is that we are throw, we should be throwing ourselves on the ground in worship of somebody who did what we could never do and gifts us not just, like when you put your faith in Jesus, you're not being handed a trophy to say you got it. You're not being handed a credit. Like you, you know, you're being given like a pro, like you're given something to get in on, right? He is our champion and he is also the prototype. He's the new Adam. And in him, we knew, you know what I mean? You're not just fixed for your bustedness. You get in on his righteousness. That's what you get. That's what the Christmas season is. What we're beholding is the story of the world that God intended and got busted. And now he is starting it again. As we behold the servant, we enter his story. That is the goal of the Christmas season. It's not just appreciation for appreciation's sake. It is adoration for the purposes of entering. It's not uh, appreciation to assuage our guilt before we open some things. It's so that we might behold the one whom we most desperately long to enter. He is the gift we've received and the gift we want to embody. You see, as we receive the incarnate son, we kind of become like that's the goal. He wants us to become the, the ones putting on flesh. As we behold him, we become him together. That's the people of God that he is making in his uh, faithful people around the world. So we have beheld the servant story. This is what Christ came to do. That is the goal of this season is to behold who he is as a person. And you can't do that apart from the story he came to fulfill. Amen. Okay, number two, let's behold the servant's identity. Let's behold his identity. The one verse we're looking at this week really hard is verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1. It just says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Y'all, in this, we see who this person is, their identity. We see their nature, what they're like in these verses. Then we see what they came to do, right? And we're going to talk about all those things this month. And just if you're like me, the first couple times I read things like this, what does it mean, even the baptism? How can the Spirit be put upon Jesus? I thought he was God. Like, what does that mean? That can trip you up a little. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just helpful to remember, like, the anointing at Jesus' baptism wasn't to give him something he didn't have. It was to equip him for the mission that the people of God had never lived in. It's a signifying moment of you will walk this out in the power of the triune God, in the power of the Holy Spirit who I'm gifting to you. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? I used to struggle with that. Did he not have the Spirit before? It's like, no, he got. <laughs> but as man, he needs an equipping, an anointing, a, a, a helping that the people of God had never had before. So the few things I want to point out to you this week about the servant is first is that this servant is also son. We saw that in Matthew 3. The servant is the son. That's who he is, and his sonship is permanent. You see that? It says, uh, whom I uphold. This, this servant ain't going nowhere. Being upheld by God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all together. He was eternally God the Son, and 2,000 years ago became Jesus of Nazareth. So his sonship is permanent. He has the Spirit. He is bringing forth justice. Second, as the son, the servant is pleasing to God. That's right there. My soul delights. That's pleasing. I delight in this servant. I delight in them in my soul. 
which means if his sonship is permanent and is always pleasing, that means that the son is permanently pleasing to the father. That's what it means. Just pleasing. I, I just want us to think about that for a second. The, the difference between what you did please me and who you are pleases me. You know, it's so important, y'all. Me and my wife were talking about this week, about how Jesus' de- God's declaration, the Father's declaration over the Son that you please me before he did anything. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased right now, before he takes that cross, before he heals anybody, before he goes anywhere, before he teaches a single sermon, this is my Son. And with him, I am well pleased. And I think we needed to hear that more than he needed to hear that. You know what I mean? I think we need to hear, look at the nature of their relationship. There's a pleasing. He's just pleased with him. And I think we, we, we've got to, and as, as, as we've been sitting in here, like we're beholding the son because as goes the son, so go we. Like when you put your trust in Jesus, what's happening is you get to relate to God the way that the son relates to God. Are you with me? We become sons and daughters in him, and so the idea is we are watching the one who pleases God, and in him we are pleasing to God. And that is a huge struggle for you and I to believe, even if you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. The thought that you are pleasing to God. I think that is quite a stretch for us to believe, really hard to believe. I want you to think about the last time, physically get in your mind, somebody looked at you and said, I'm proud of you. I want you to think about it. Some of you are like searching, searching. And I'm sorry if that is the case. I really am. And if you haven't heard that a lot in your life, you do remember it. I remember it. I remember the last time. And it not a like, I'm proud of you, man. You know, just a quick, hey, good job, dude. Proud of you, man. Um, the last time you re- received a, I'm proud of you. And somebody's looking you right in the eyes. I remember I just, it's like I didn't choose to start crying. I just was. There's something about you are pleasing to me. I'm just so proud of you. You delight me. A little bit, you're like, can we change the subject? Uh, do, we not, do we not get squirmy when somebody looks you right in the eyes and you know they mean it and you're like, I want this so bad and I don't want to be here. You know, like, I don't know how to. Uh, um, well, y'all, in Jesus, y'all, we are pleasing to God. I think for a lot of us, we again, we get in the religious framework that we have to please God. And in your own strength, you can't do that. That's the irony. When you try to please God, sometimes it gets, it gets tricky. When you recognize you are pleasing to God, you tend to please God. <laughs> when you seek to please God, you struggle to please God because you don't feel like he's pleased with you. You see how that works? But when we operate from being pleasing, we live pleasing. That tends to be how that works. When we receive his love freely, when it's gifted to us, when we just take it into our inner being, we don't have any, yeah, but, 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 you know, like we so quickly want to, want to, I think even as a Christian right now, you know God loves you. If I really broke it down and we had a long session about how you think God feels about you, there would be a yeah, but somewhere in there. Yeah, but I got to clean this up though. And it's like, hey, praise the Lord, there's conviction in your life. You know, like I'm not saying I, I got things that, that needs some work, okay? But what does that have to do with what Christ has done and how God feels about you? Because what we want to do is we want to be in control of whether we think we are pleasing. 
And we wouldn't call this, y'all, but that is self-righteousness. It is, a, it is a you are in control of your view of yourself. And I think part of the gift of the Christmas season is beholding the son's status. Like when we behold his identity and just receive it. We will never become him. We will never walk in who he was if we don't behold who he, what he had with the Father. Jesus wasn't anxious. <laughs> he wasn't living from a posture, if I blow this, you know what I mean? He wasn't living from fear. Got to do three miracles today. Oh, man. You know, there's something about his isness with God, his pleasing with God. He wasn't calculating from fear. He was living in a posture of being pleasing. And I, I think that's part of what we get to behold in this season. Isn't that amazing? God the Father looks at you, believer, sealed by the Spirit, and says, you are my child, and with you I am well pleased. The flip side of that is, if you are not a believer, the Father is not pleased with you. That's hard. That's what the Bible teaches. He has done everything necessary for you to be seen as son or daughter, and it has nothing to do with you being more good. It's receiving his free love. That's what it is. That's the, gospel. That's the good news. He in my place, I in his. That's what the baptism was all about. Receive it. Receive. So the call to you to behold this season is to receive. And is this not what every heart longs for? Is to be told, I'm proud of you. <laughs> That's what we're seeking for so bad. Our culture wants us to build our own brand and to get other people to greenlight it. And we think that'll make us happy. It don't matter how many people greenlight you. You were designed to be greenlighted by God the Father, Son, Spirit, the Godhead. That's who you were designed to be greenlighted by and pleased that's the only one that will keep you satisfied. Any other person, it'll last a little while. Give us some time. Just takes one hater and you back, uh, you in trouble. I can promise you. I can promise you. Y'all, in Jesus, pleasing God isn't just what you do, it's who you are. You will live pleasing to God. There is a way to live that pleases God. We just got done with a whole series in Philippians and there's a lot in there where Paul is you know, the New Testament is filled. This is how to live. And we're going to talk about how the servant lived. But it's not just what we do. It's who we are. And because it's who we are, because it's what Christ did, it is what we'll do in him. We will. But we don't live in order to please him as much as we do because we already have pleased him in Christ. I want to please God, but before that, I already do. That's the gospel. So we've talked about beholding the servant story, beholding the servant's identity. I just want to talk a little bit about beholding the servant and this idea of behold. Behold is kind of like that grabbing word, isn't it? Behold. <laughs> it's funny, I looked up one like uh, biblical definition had the word low. Low, behold. Um, <laughs> I was like, we don't use that anymore. We should bring it back. Low, behold. Um, that would always get taps in front of it. I just think it's funny. And the idea is fixate on this. Don't miss this now. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Pay attention. Behold. Don't miss it. Again, thinking about waiting. Thinking about waiting and your attention being grabbed, you know? I remember one time I was sitting in an airport and, you know, you'll be at a gate or something and you got about an hour, 40 minutes till your flight comes and you look up and you see when the time is. Then you just go in the zone of distraction. Amen? And you're just, you're just flipping. People are probably moving around you. You just ate your five guys, which was $19. You're chilling. You're just flipping, you're doing your thing. And then you look up, rub your eyes because your eyes hurt because they weren't designed to look at that little screen that long. And you're like, 
Your gate has changed. You have no idea where. There ain't even a person at the kiosk no more. And you got like 19 minutes until it's supposed to board. And you scramble. You're like, oh, grab my stuff. Behold, where is the uh, help? Help. And now you need some information, you know? Y'all, that's a different kind of waiting, which is waiting for a workout to start. I don't know if y'all have ever like been a part of any kind of race or, or team-oriented thing where you're just kind of waiting for the start. Those people aren't like on their phones. They're like, you got weird stuff goes on, okay? Some people listen to music. Some people are stretching. Some people are they're doing their thing to get in the zone, but what they're doing is envisioning what's about to happen and how it changes things. A new era is coming. I need to get ready for it, you know? I'm not just going to sit here and be... The idea is one has a tension. It has a beholding nature to it. I am so conscious that when that person walks through that door, when that time starts, when that gun sounds, when that thing starts, it's on. Behold is a, an alertness. Every action gets brought into line to proportion to... You, you, ever, you ever, like, it's not even realistic, like, if you really break down the math, you're like, I can't go to the bathroom, I'm waiting on this thing, and it's like 19 minutes away, but you're so dialed in on the thing, I do this at the airport, I'm like, I don't have time, and it's like, dude, you have an hour until you board, go to the bathroom, you know what I mean, but I'm like, I'm, I'm ready though, man, you know, I'm ready, other times I'm like, over ready, but that's the idea, is that every decision gets brought back into proportion to what's about to happen, I got something I'm beholding, so let me Okay, this is this, now this. You see how the order of operations changes? It goes from what do I want to do, now let me, I'm just doing that, and then what do I want to do in proportion to what's coming? That's beholding. It becomes the like center of gravity of your decision making. Does that make sense? It's like, man, this is the thing that it all orients around. That's beholding. Pay attention. Look over here. And what God is saying to us is behold the servant. Behold this person. And that's so hard for us. Like, what does that mean? Behold a person, behold a story, behold his identity, all of it. Just behold him. Look at him. Fixate on him. Wait on him. Look to him. Trust him. Behold him. Not just in a spirit of appreciation, but admiration. Not just a spirit of, of at, even admiration, but devotion. Because the more those take a progress, if all you've ever done is Christmas time appreciation, I'm not guilting you. Take a step. Like, let's move towards, like, some adoration. Let's move towards some beholding. Let's move towards some devotion because what God wants is for us to enter his servant. Let's enter the servant. So, Port City, my prayer for us for the next few weeks in Advent is just to behold this person of Jesus. Give yourself grace because you are an American. You are, an, you are a materialist. I don't know if you know that or not, but we are. All of us are. And we need help. God help us. God help every culture in the way they need it and the time they are. It's not just us Americans, amen. But we need help. We need a lot of help. We're so inundated with the assumptions of what the season is. Even well-meaning commercials that are like, it's all about family. Uh, ka-wrong, you know? That is ka-wrong. Sounds better than just being all out materialist Best Buy. But, you know, we need help to behold. And nobody is going to help you do that. Does that make sense? So part of what the Advent season, what, what we get to do, and we're in a less traditional environment, a lot of individual families have theirs, but we don't have like, this is the one, is just get with your people, get in your group this week, with your, in your family, come talk to somebody, like, how can I fix my eyes more this year than I have last year? How can I behold him more, his story more? What does that even mean? I would love to talk to you about what that means. How do we, let's just take a step in beholding him, and the Lord will meet us there. He will make Jesus more precious. He will make our need for him more precious, our, our receiving what we have in him 
more precious. So just take a step. Don't beat yourself up. Let us behold the servant. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Um, God, I am just amazed so much sometimes by how cool your word is and all the connections and all the ways that history uh, lines up. And Lord, I feel like I could nerd out. And I just want people to see it all, you know, and I, I feel, I know a lot of us in this room feel that way. God, I just pray that this season some connections will be made that don't just, we don't just think are cool, but they unlock some, some just giddiness over your word, over uh, life with you, over getting to worship you, over, because Lord, if we're honest, a lot of the times we are playing the game. We do, we feel a need to appreciate you, but Lord, we don't always, we don't know how to enter you. We don't know how this progression to devotion and, and, and God, we, we're lazy, we're distracted. We need so much help. So Father, I just pray you would help us. Help us to be gracious with ourselves and diligent as well. Because, uh, Lord, our, everything hinges on whether we understand how this isn't just some obscure story somewhere, Lord. This is your story. This is ours. And Jesus is everything we could ever want, ever need, and ever hope to be. So, Father, I pray that on the other side of, of studying these things, we would be more embodied Jesus for our city, for our neighbors, our community, our workplaces, our, our teams, our schools. God, would we uh, uh, become the one taking on flesh as a, as a church family here? I believe that's your goal for us, Lord, is that we would behold you and, and enter life with you more and put, put, put action out there and words like actual things being born out of us all because of this beholding process. Lord, that's what you do. You bring the invisible into the visible all the time. Thank you, Lord, that you entered our story that we might enter yours. And this season, help us to behold you. And Lord, if anybody does not know you, Lord, would this Christmas season be the first time that they see that you are a gift that you are gifting yourself to us. We do not earn you, Lord, and would we receive it? Would we receive it? We love you, Father. Be glorified by the rest of our time. In Jesus' name, amen.